This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Nutshell Politics, the podcast that was recently ranked number one on the hottest new podcast that you should be listening to by my mother. I'm your host, Justin Kenny, and I am excited to be here with you guys for one of my favorite topics of all. We're going to be talking about terrorism. The episode I have on tap for you guys today is actually a modified version of a talk that I've given many times before. It's one of my favorites. I've actually given it as an interview before on the radio on KLRN Radio. I have given it as a lecture to my undergraduate students at the university where I work, and it's just one of my all-time favorites. I think it's really interesting. We're going to kind of walk through the history of modern terrorism, the different types of groups that have come up, and we'll talk a little bit about what makes them all different. We'll talk about the different ideologies that have cropped up over time, the different tactics, different types of groups, what which groups were the most successful at accomplishing their goals, and we'll touch on a lot of different things. I think it'll be really interesting. So let's kick things off by saying that terrorism actually has roots in a a specific form of attack that goes back thousands of years. Even in the ancient kind of pre-modern world, there were groups like uh, the Sicarii, which was a first century group found in Judea. It was sought to overthrow the Roman rule. It's actually kind of a a violent offshoot of the Zealots. If you're a biblical scholar, you've heard of Simon the Zealot. He's one of Jesus's original apostles. He's considered a saint by many of the churches from Roman Catholic to Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran. And he belonged to this religious sect known as the Zealots. They were, it was mostly kind of a Jewish freedom movement. And this group and their activities is where we actually get our word today, zealous, from. So they, they were known as being very zealous. And there was this splinter sect of them called the Sicarii. And the Sicarii, it's actually a a Hebrew word. It means dagger men or something equivalent to that because they were known for carrying little sikai or small daggers, which they concealed in their cloaks. Their uh, tactics were not really what you think of today when you think of terrorism, but modern terrorist groups do have their roots in some similar things. These were essentially assassins. They uh, pulled out these daggers to attack Romans, uh, Roman sympathizers, and they were known for being kind of quick attacks. They would attack and then blend back into the crowd after their deed was done. And they were known as probably one of the more prominent revolutionary groups of that era. Now, the Sicarii did eventually die out. They were wiped out by the Romans, the last of them falling at the the famous city of Masada, which is the big kind of castle on a hill or fortress on a hill. But that was probably one of the first precursors to what you would consider terrorism. And there were other groups too. A few centuries after that, you had the Hashashin or Asasin. This was a sect uh, spun off of Islam in kind of the 11th century or so. And this is actually where we get our word assassin from. Asashin, Hashashin, Assassin, Assassin. And this was a violent sect or secret order almost 
that was noted for assassinations of you know, key enemy figures. You can read some about them in some of the Crusader writings. You also have them mentioned in some of Marco Polo's writings as well. And this group is one of the first to really engage in psychological warfare. They're focusing on attacking in, in plain view, sometimes on full view of the public, broad daylight, and it gave them a certain reputation as being fearless. And because of that, there's been a lot of legends that have kind of cropped up around this group. If you're at all familiar with the famous video game Assassin's Creed, uh, one, of, one of those versions of the game, I believe it might actually be the original one, the character is actually based very loosely around this idea of the Hashashin order. And as I said a minute ago too, this is actually where we get our word assassin from. And so this group and their legacy has really carried over through today. There was another kind of ancient group I want to touch on called the Tugis. Now you probably don't recognize the pronunciation I just used, Tugi, but I'm sure they'll recognize the word that we get from this group, the Thugs. This group is spelled T-H-U-G-G-E-E. -E. And this is an organized gang almost of professional uh, murderers and robbers that would join like traveling caravans in groups across the Indian subcontinent for a period of hundreds and hundreds of years. And they're kind of a mix. They, ha they have some weird religious ideas. Some things get traced back to Islam. There's some mixture of Hindu in there. But largely, they're known for a couple things. Uh, one, they acted as kind of highway robbers. They would trick their victims into allowing them to join their traveling caravan, travel with them sometimes for miles and miles, and then in the dead of night, strangle their victims to death. They would use some sort of garrote. And we've seen this actually used in movies as well. Uh, if you're familiar at all with Indiana Jones, he comes across a Tugi variant, uh, again, very loosely based on them, in his movie, The Temple of Doom. Uh, this is a group, if you remember, there was he's in his hotel room at one point and someone jumps out at him and tries to strangle him from behind with the grot and he fights him off. Eventually the guy gets gets entangled in the ceiling fan and is strangled himself, but that guy is meant to be a Tugi. It's kind of a fictionalized religious ritual that you see later in the film as well uh, with the pulling the hearts out of the chest and everything. These are all kind of legends around this Tugi order of robbers and assassins. And so you have these kind of three ancient groups that all have different elements of what we consider today to be terrorism, the Sakari, the Hashashin, the Tugis, but they really weren't what you would typically think of as a terrorist group when you hear that phrase. And that's because what we consider modern terrorism didn't really come about until much, much later. And in fact, you don't even find the word terrorism cropping up until the French reign of terror in the 1700s. And they used a lot of violence, including things like mass executions. This is where we saw the guillotine. And it was all designed around compelling obedience toward the state. Uh, and so at this time period, the word terrorism was kind of used mostly to refer to a form of violence used to force obedience to the state. So it was more of like a state-sanctioned or state form of terrorism. Even that doesn't really quite fit with what we tend to think of a terrorist organization today being. And so the first time we really see what you would consider modern terrorism comes about in the late 1800s, and it starts with a group of anarchist organizations. Now, from here on out, I'm going to be talking about terrorism in what are considered waves. And this is a concept that comes from a man by the name of David Rappaport. Rappaport came up with this concept of viewing terrorism in a form of waves over time, that waves of different ideologies and tactics. And he published this back in 2004, and it's really become one of the predominant articles or predominant theories in all of terrorism studies. And this is really important because when we think of terrorism today and terrorist groups, 
almost instantaneously, we think of religious terrorism. But this is really just one form of terrorism, and there's been several others before this. And so Rappaport argues that modern terrorism, as we think of terrorist groups, really began in the late 1800s, about the 1880s, in Russia. And it kind of moved then across Europe, into the Balkans, Asia, even all the way into Western Europe. But this wave lasted about a generation, and it was all focused around anarchy. And so this is called the anarchist wave. It lasted about 40 years, 1880s until roughly the First World War, maybe early 1920s. And this is where we first saw terrorism used by the people against the government. Uh, now, in Russia specifically, it was traditionally targeted against government leaders and officials, not necessarily towards like individuals or other civilians, but we did see it used by the people against the government. And this wave was mostly marked by assassinations, including assassinations of leaders across the world. And this kind of kicked off what's called the golden age of assassination. It averaged about one major European minister or head of state being assassinated about every 18 months. And you could also throw in some famous assassinations into this list, including the U.S. president, William McKinley. And probably most notably, this age of assassination would include the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And his death was really what put into motion the events that kicked off World War I. So you can almost consider this wave of terror as being the precursor to World War I because of the way it worked through assassinations. And so this anarchist wave was mostly people who sought to be revolutionaries. They were seeking to destroy government, destroy the conventions of bureaucracy. They saw themselves as liberators of humanity. But mostly this wave of terror was focused on what's called provocation. Provocation is a specific type of terrorism that's aiming to get states to retaliate. Because if you can attack the state with something small and they overreact by attacking back with something way out of proportion, that legitimizes your cause and your ideology. It helps you recruit people and it will polarize society and help kind of break up the people from the government. And so it allows for a polarized society that would eventually, the idea being here, would rise up and revolt, overthrow the government. Now, during this time period, though, terrorism was not viewed in quite the same way that we think of it today. It was actually seen more of like martyrs and heroes. There was kind of a nobility, almost romanticized during this time period. And so because of this, any sort of perpetrators of this anarchist wave were actually pretty happy to accept the label terrorists. Uh, they wanted to be called terrorists. They frequently called themselves terrorists. You didn't see phrases like guerrilla warfare or anything like that. It was it's a kind of romanticized nobility in being a terrorist because it was seen as a martyr fighting against the oppressive government. This is a time period, too. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was president during part of this here in the United States, and he launched, or I should say tried to launch, an international cooperative effort to eliminate terrorism. He believed that, uh, this is a quote, anarchy is a crime against the whole human race. And so this is one of the very first times we saw anybody attempt some sort of international cooperation to fight terrorism. But his attempts failed. Most of the time, these nations that he was trying to reach out to were too hesitant to cooperate. And we saw this wave of terror lead into World War I, as I mentioned before. And so for a time period, terrorism kind of died off. Once the Treaty of Versailles ended World War I, we saw a, a kind of a lull in terrorism. But we saw a rise again fairly soon after. But this time it took a different form. And this is a second wave started in the 1920s. And it was referenced as the anti-colonial wave, or sometimes called the nationalist wave. And this again lasted about 40 years, 1920s until the 1960s. 
and it saw several differences from the previous anarchist wave. In particular, you saw two things. Uh, first is ideology. As you would probably expect from the name, this was a rise of groups that were fighting against their colonial masters. It was anti-colonialism, usually the British or the Ottoman Empire was the target. And this took place in countries like Algeria, Greece, Ireland. And especially as you get kind of later into this wave after World War II, or through World War II and then into the years after, there were a lot of these major traditional empires, like say the British, that were weakened. They were kind of breaking up already. The wars had taken a huge toll and decimated their populations. And so terrorist groups really started to take advantage of this, their colonial masters being distracted elsewhere. And so they started to rise and flourish as they fought for kind of what they saw as nationalist pride and independence. And so you still saw some heroes of this new wave become nationalist heroes, national heroes that we still think of today. You may be familiar with, say, Michael Collins in Ireland. During this time period, too, as I mentioned, these countries were much more focused on their own problems back home, decimated populations, war. And so we saw them caring less about these far-flung territories. And empires kind of be started to liquidate themselves, which meant that they didn't really... They weren't really interested in responding to this terrorist activity as much as they would have, say, 30 or 40 years earlier. And so this is the time period where we saw the most widespread, in terms of like global terrorism. You had Algeria, the FLN there, uh, Argentina, Indonesia, Japan, Peru, Sri Lanka, Nor Northern Ireland, uh, the Basques and Spain. And the goal here was mostly attrition. The idea here is if you can just put enough cost on your colonial master, you attack things like police forces, infrastructure, those sorts of things. And most of the funding in this time period was coming from diaspora groups, some expats living in other parts of the world, offering support to their, you know, their brethren, their kin back home. But if you can impose enough cost, the colonial master will look at it and say, you know, it's just not worth it anymore. We're going to pull back. And so you didn't see things like assassinations during this wave. You saw more guerrilla style hit and run attacks. These became very popular and their targets were more based around, as I mentioned, infrastructure or police. But this was the era where we saw any sort of heroism and martyrdom, virtue, nobility disappear. This is where you start to see terrorism take on that negative label. And it mostly began with the IRA in Ireland. You had a group called the Manchester Martyrs. They were freedom fighters. And some of their skirmishes started to kill civilians. And this is the first time where you really see innocent civilians getting caught up in terrorism, including, I should mention, children for the very first time. And so any sort of remaining element of virtue of, in terrorism vanished here. Because of this, that word terrorism started to engender a lot of negative connotations. And so you saw this need for a new label arise within the groups. They wanted to call themselves something different. They didn't want to refer to themselves as terrorists anymore because of that negative connotation. And so the last groups that self-identified as terrorists died out during this period. And we started to see the rise of a phrase you're probably familiar with today called freedom fighters. And so they frequently reference themselves as fighting for freedom. Now, this is the wave that is traditionally seen as the most successful wave. That is, terrorist groups managed to get what they wanted most frequently. And you can think of this as, as probably being fairly logical. This is the time period when the people they were fighting against were mostly busy elsewhere, had other more pressing concerns with war and post-war revitalization. You think of this in terms of the British Empire, the Ottoman Empire, which broke up, countries that were kind of breaking up on their own. And these terrorist groups pop up and they really take advantage of the, the weakened, distracted colonial masters. And you saw a lot of countries start to gain their independence through these groups. 
But this wave too eventually does start to die out and you saw a third wave, the third wave of terrorism, crop up in about the 1960s, maybe early 1960s. And it really begins with the onset of the Vietnam War and kind of carries through the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. And what happened here is the Vietnam War actually inspired a lot of groups. You had the, the poorly armed, poorly trained, poorly funded Viet Cong that inspired a lot of groups by showing that even with their poor technology and training and funding, they can still carry out effective methods against the much more powerful countries and other enemies out there. And so when the Vietnam War kind of concluded, you had a lot of groups that saw that and reacted accordingly saying hey we can fight back too and groups like this usually were marked by very far left-wing ideologies in fact this wave is usually referred to as the new left wave usually communist and they're also traditionally found in kind of these affluent western countries mostly in europe and it gets this name the new left from the ideology but also from the fact that a lot of these groups were funded or encouraged by the Soviet Union. They offered material support to a lot of groups, including the Red Army faction in Germany, the Italian Red Brigades. Uh, Italy was one of the worst countries for terrorism during this time period. You had the Sandinistas in Nicaragua and the PLO as well, which actually became kind of the premier group for helping train other terrorist organizations around the world. The PLO got a lot of strong support from the rest of the Arab world, as well as the Soviet Union, meaning it had resources to help a lot of these other groups. And so during this time period, a lot of these new left groups from around the world reached out to the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, as kind of a benefactor for their group. And during this time period, you saw the assassination tactic rise again, as well as things like hijackings and kidnappings. The concept of a hostage crisis actually became kind of one of the key markers of this third wave of terrorism. And the high point of the terrorism was probably a moment by the Red Brigades in Italy when they kidnapped and subsequently executed the Italian prime minister, a man by the name of Aldo Moro. Now, this time period also saw what you would consider maybe a theatrical element to terrorism a lot less concerned with local stuff, and there was more of an element of playing up to the international stage and playing to the media as a tactic. Uh, they saw them, themselves as being actors playing on the world stage, trying to draw attention and drawing support from other groups through the media, through international attention. And so we saw political kidnappings here happen at a very high rate. I think there were over 70 countries that had some sort of political-based kidnappings. Uh, you had hostage crises. Uh, the IRA, you know, tried to kill an ambassador. Actually, tried actually did kill an ambassador. It tried to kill Margaret Thatcher. Black September uh, was a group in Palestine that killed the Jordanian prime minister. Went after Jordan's King Hussein. Failed there. The ETA killed the Spanish prime minister. Those types of things. Uh, you also saw groups like the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, which took actually their the entire Nicaraguan Congress hostage at one point. So you see those types of things. You also see a shift towards international terrorism. Uh, terrorism turned international in the 1960s. 1968 is where you first see the, the first, I should say, true international terrorist incident when a Palestinian group hijacked an Israeli airline. And so you saw things like those type of hijackings also start to rise. Then in 1972, the Munich Olympics, you saw Black September, that same group from earlier that I mentioned kidnapped and killed some Israeli athletes. This is a, one of the more famous instances of international terrorism. We saw attacks on embassies. The PLO went after the Saudi embassy. A group in Peru called Tupac Amaru attacked the Japanese embassy. And in particular, this is the time period where you see the United States and Americans living abroad become 
the primary or most common targets of terrorism. And terrorism was started to be viewed as a way to influence politics abroad. And so we started to see state sponsorship of terrorism too, where states looked at terrorist groups as tools that they could use to influence and push politics abroad. Now, this time period of terrorism was also marked by a couple other new elements. We saw women start to take on a bigger role in terrorist organizations. There were very few women in terrorism prior to this, but we started to see them rise up a little bit more. We also saw terrorism take on more of a punishment angle. This is actually what distinguishes their assassinations from the first wave of terror, which was a little bit more symbolic. Here we see them targeting specific leaders because they feel that leader harmed them in some capacity. And we also start to see on kind of the other side of this, that international cooperation on fighting terrorism start to rise again. Where we saw U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt start this way back in the first wave, by the time the third wave rolls around and terrorism really starts to move international, we see international cooperation start to rise too. States start to really agree with what Teddy said years before, that terrorism in one country could potentially spill over and affect them in other countries. And so we see international cooperation rise. And so this wave kind of continues in, into the 80s, and you start to get an overlap here between the new left wave and the fourth wave of terror, which, which we'll get to in a minute. But the new left wave started to die out in kind of the 80s, as the, especially the late 80s, as the Soviet Union collapsed. Because they were so heavily funding a lot of these groups, when the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of that funding vanished. Now, there was a brief time period after the Soviet Union collapsed where a black market on Soviet-produced weapons just blew up. It just completely erupted. We saw AK-47s flood the market. Many groups began using them. And so there actually was a brief period where groups spiked as soon as the Soviet Union fell because all the weaponry that they had flooded into the, these terrorist groups. But shortly thereafter, the funding dried up and these groups started to die out because they didn't have their main benefactor of the Soviet Union still funding them. And so this kind of leads into that fourth wave, which I said kind of overlaps with the third wave, the new left. And this fourth wave is what we're currently experiencing today, a religious wave of terror. So this is what we typically think of when we think of terrorism today. Religious elements have been important in modern terrorism for a long time, at least due to frequent overlap between religious and ethnic ideologies, but mostly prior to this point, the aim of terrorist groups was not religious. Religion may have played a role, but the aim of groups was mostly to create secular states. But religious terrorism changes that, turns it on its head, and it essentially begins with the Iranian Revolution in the 1970s and then continues through the Soviet-Afghan War. And in particular, that Soviet-Afghan War plays a really big role in today's terrorism because a lot of groups actually point to roots in this conflict. And the reason for that is because the Soviet-Afghan conflict was frequently viewed as being the poor, less trained, but religious, in this case, Islamic Afghans fighting against the big secular superpower of the Soviets. And the Afghans were successful, in part because actually the United States helped fund them, but other groups as well. And so it was seen as justification and validation for a religious form of violence that won, and they believed this was kind of God-directed, against the secular atheists of the Soviet Union. And so this inspired a lot of groups across the Middle East in particular, but you also have individuals who fought in this conflict, probably the most famous being Osama bin Laden, and these people went back home and took that form of violent ideology, religious ideology, with them and started their own groups there. And so many of these religious groups, not only across the Middle East, but across the entire world, 
have roots in this conflict where it was seen as religion beating the atheists. And so the religious wave really kind of starts in these two conflicts. That said, this religious wave was fairly sporadic until September 11, 2001, when it took off. And today, it's really hard to name a single active terrorist group in the world that isn't at least partially religious in nature. There are a few. I'll throw out a couple, the ETA being one. Uh, there are some that are more ethnic with a little bit of religion thrown in, like the PKK. But we've really reached a point where virtually every terrorist group in the world is religious in nature today. And now the grand majority of those are Islamic in nature, as I mentioned, in part due to this connection with the Afghan-Soviet war. There are a few that aren't. Uh, Ayum Shinrikyo in Japan. There's some Sikh groups in the Punjab region, the LRA in Africa. But it is true that Islam has been kind of at the heart of this wave, with Islamist groups being the most common, the most deadly, and behind some of the most significant attacks. Now, this religious wave has also seen a shift in some tactics. We've seen a shift away from more clearly defined leadership and structures to more loosely organized hierarchies, uh, much more decentralized, to the point where we have, say, Al-Qaeda today, which is almost like franchised organization. We also see groups getting larger during this wave, probably because religion appeals across borders much more so than kind of strict national identities. We see a rise in suicide terrorism. This is inspired by the Tamil Tigers, which was a secular group actually in Sri Lanka. But we're at a point now where suicide terrorism is almost exclusively religious in nature since the fall of the Tigers. And this is the wave that we are currently in. The United States has actually become the primary international enemy of this fourth wave. International terrorism is again still rising. Despite this rise, however, there is still a lot of domestic terrorism. And in fact, 95% of terrorism in this religious wave takes place in three countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan. But this all leads us to today. And we're currently in about year 40 or so of this religious wave, which if you were paying attention earlier when I was listing links of waves, 40 is about the time when we start to see a wave end and a new one begin. And so there's been this big question about, well, what's going to happen to this religious wave? Is there something uniquely different about the religious wave that will cause it to last longer than traditional waves in the past, the anarchist or anti-colonial or the new left? Or is there going to be a fifth wave that starts to crop up? A handful of years ago, there was a man named Jeffrey Kaplan who argued that the fifth wave might be about tribalism, something like the Lord's Resistance Army, that type of mold. Uh, we also had Jeffrey Simon, a different Jeffrey, who said that the fifth wave might not be uh, dominated by any specific groups, but more about technological interconnectedness or lone wolves. Uh, we've also seen arguments that the next wave will be do dominated by like quasi-state groups, kind of like an ISIS, something along those lines. But personally, I kind of have a feeling that this religious wave is not going to end in that 40-year, you know, single-generation length that the others have. And I think there's a couple reasons to look for a much longer wave this time. Uh, first, you know, religion is something that is passed down much stronger from parent to child than some of the other ideologies like anarchy or leftism and those type of things. Those can be passed down, but religious beliefs and religious ideologies are transferred from generation to generation much more strongly. And so you see religious communities as opposed to other like nationalist or ideological communities last a lot longer. They have a much longer longevity. And so you have religion as something that's a little bit more inherent to, an, to, to a person's identity and to a family's identity than, say, a communist belief of the new left or an anarchist belief, uh, even more so than some of the nationalist beliefs, although that would also be a fairly strong one that gets passed down too. 
And secondly, I think religious terrorism is something where you don't really see anything in its way that's going to slow it down. When you have something that's more of a political ideology, there are certain concessions that can be made that will appease the group and they start to die out. We saw, we saw this with some of the anti-colonial groups where they started to gain their independence. They died out. Uh, same thing with some of the new left groups. But with religion, there's not really a good way to compromise. There's no appeasing them with you know partial concessions, those sorts of things. And so there's nothing really out there that I think can dilute the religious terrorism and these extremist ideologies that perpetuate it. And further, too, this religious way was taking place at a very key point in history where they have tools available to them that these other groups simply did not that help them spread their ideology, namely the internet and social media. They're able to communicate and recruit and draw on support from much, much further away. And I, I have a feeling personally that this is going to exacerbate the problem and extend its longevity. Doesn't mean we're gonna have religious terrorism forever. It's quite possible that somewhere down the road, something else will take its place. But I think at least for the short term, this religious wave might end up being an abnormally long wave of terrorism beyond what we saw with the other three previously. But I think this is something that's really worth keeping an eye on going forward because as somebody who may end up working in counterterrorism or just people in general who want to try to counter some of these extremist beliefs in the population, it's important to kind of understand where they're coming from and where they're going and what might be coming next. But with that, we are up to today in the history of terrorism. So we're going to go ahead and conclude the episode. Hope you really enjoyed it. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. As always, find me on social media. My username on Twitter is Justin R underscore Kinney. Find me, follow me there. You can also find me on Facebook under my author name, J. Robert Kinney. Keep an eye out for my books. I have one that's on Amazon called Precipice, another one that should be coming out in the next couple months, and I will let you know about that when it does. If you're interested in advertising on this podcast or supporting the podcast or me in any way, please reach out and contact me. I would love to talk to you more about that possibility. In the meantime, though, spread the word about the podcast, tell your friends about it, and I look forward to talking with you next time on Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kinney, and I'm out in three, two, one.